You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. It happens every once in a while. Something doesn't get recorded for whatever reason. I'd love to be able to blame the sound guys for this, but actually I think it's probably my own fault, so i got to take responsibility for that one. Probably somehow I set up the sound wrong, and uh, this message from John 11, 25-26 did not get recorded. So we're going to go through the passage today, kind of give you uh, what I taught on that Sunday morning uh, for those of you who might be following along through the study of John. We've observed on a number of occasions as we've studied through John's Gospel that all of humanity can be divided into two camps. They're the saved and the unsaved, the redeemed and the unredeemed. There are those who have been delivered from the wrath of God and those who are under the wrath of God, and we've seen this distinction characterized in a number of different ways. And one way that we can identify these two camps is in terms of their either being alive or dead. And I'm not speaking here of physical life and death, but spiritually alive or dead. There are those who are spiritually dead. They are the unredeemed, the unbelieving, the unsaved. They are those who are spiritually alive. They are the redeemed, the believing, and the saved. And there's no middle ground between those two conditions. You are either spiritually alive or you are spiritually dead. As a result of Adam's sin, everyone is born into the human race a sinner, born spiritually dead, dead on arrival, born without any spiritual capacity to commune with or to fellowship with God. We have no spiritual life in us. The natural man, the man who is born of the flesh, cannot please God and does not have the capacity for fellowship with God. We are born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1-3 through You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And the one who has been born again is made alive by the working of the Spirit. The very next verse in Ephesians 2 says, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So you're either dead in a trespass, your trespasses and sins, or you have been made alive by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. This world is not populated with people who are spiritually ill or terminally ill, spiritually speaking. People who are kind of alive, but on their way to being dead, or maybe dead, but in the process of being regenerated. No, when the Spirit of God gives you new life, there's no process to that regeneration. You go from death to life. You have passed from death to life, from one realm into the other realm. And by regeneration, that's actually what we're talking about, an instant transferal from the dominion of death to the dominion of life in Christ Jesus. Something that occurred to me this last week um, is that in English we use the word dying to refer to somebody who's actually living. You ever realize that? You ever thought about that? We never, we never say that somebody who is dead is dying because the term dying can only refer to somebody who's actually alive and in the process of becoming dead. And by the way, everybody listening to this, everybody in the room is dying. You started the process of dying the minute where you were conceived and you have been on a dying trajectory ever since. And you are, have been on your way to decay. Now, some of you are closer than others to that end result, but you have been on your way to decay ever since the moment of your conception. We never use the term living 
to refer to somebody who is dead and in the process of becoming alive. Dying can only refer to somebody who is alive. Living can only refer to somebody who is alive. You see, our language even acknowledges this irreversible trajectory. Humanly speaking, death is final and it is irreversible. When Jesus arrived outside of the tomb, outside of Bethany, near the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus was not dying, he was dead. He had been dead four days. And the delay in time had to be intentional because Jesus did not do anything unintentionally. And as we saw last time we were together in John 11, the fourth day is when the Jews regarded that death to be irreversible. Um, up to that point, they had this traditional belief, it's not a biblical belief, but one of their traditions, their own culture, that the spirit hovered outside of the body seeking re-entry. But after the third day when decomposition set in, then they considered, humanly speaking, death to be irreversible. And those who were believers in Jesus, Mary and Martha, believed that Jesus was able to heal their brother, to prevent him from dying. But both Martha and Mary at separate times confessed, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that was an accurate confession as far as it goes, but it didn't go far enough. And the intention of the Lord in this miracle is to reveal to them something about himself that they had, up to this point, not yet fully grasped. This miracle would serve to strengthen their faith and to inform their faith. And as we noted last time, Mary had a very orthodox confession in a belief in the bodily resurrection on the last day. When Jesus said to her, your brother will rise, she said to him, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha was right to believe in a bodily resurrection because that's what the Old Testament taught. That's what the Jewish faith looked forward to. That was the hope of the righteous. And she was right. Her brother will rise on the last day. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. And all of that just sim simply sets the stage for the text that we're looking at today in verses 25 and 26. And I want to offer you a simple outline just for the purpose of organizing our thoughts this morning. Our hope for life and the resurrection to come rests firmly on two things. Number one, the person of Christ. And second, the promise of Christ. The person of Christ in verse 25 and the promise of Christ in verses 25 and 26. These are very familiar words to you. Let's read them together. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? These are likely familiar words to you. You've heard them preached. You've heard them read. You've heard them quoted. And consequently, I am aware of the fact that I'm not going to plumb in this passage any depths of meaning which you have probably not already well, uh, you have not already plumbed or at least uh, others have well plumbed. Most Christians have looked upon this promise and meditated upon this promise on so many different occasions and so many different ways that any attempt to make this seem new to anyone is ill-fated from the start. But at the same time, we must, as we stare at the face of this promise, realize there is a depth of meaning and truth here that none of us are simply able to fully grasp. Like looking down into the, a bottomless well, we realize that our human sight and our human only understanding can only take us so far. As much as we might see here in this passage, we only see a bit of this. There are things about the nature of Christ and the realities of eternity that are well beyond our ability to fully understand. They are magnificent truths which awe us. And we realize we are seeing only the surface. We are only acquainted with the fringes of his ways. So knowing that, let's jump into this. The person of Christ in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now this is the fifth of seven I am statements in John's gospel. And all these I am declarations are connected to either a discourse or a miracle, and sometimes both. And we shouldn't miss the fact that the I am statements are intended to remind us of his divine nature. Three times in John 8, Jesus declared himself to be the I am. 
which was a clear reference to the title of God that God gave to Moses of himself in Exodus chapter 3. And all of the I am statements where Jesus says, uses the I am form and then fills it in with something that describes him, they are all allusions to that reality that Jesus used that divine title and that name of God for himself. So here are the seven I am's. John 6.35, I'm the bread of life. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. John 10.7, I am the door of the sheep. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. And then there are two more. John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And John 15.1, I am the true vine. Each of those reveals something different about the person of Christ and what he provides for his people. Each of them is a revelation of his nature and his person. It's worth noting that all seven of these I am statements is coupled with a, a promise to believers. As the bread of life, Jesus promises that he who comes to me will never hunger, he who believes in me will never thirst. As the light of the world, he promises that those who follow him will not walk in darkness. As the door of the sheep, he states that anyone entering through him will be saved. As the good shepherd, he promises to lay down his life for his sheep and to secure them everlastingly so that they will never perish. And here in this context, we see that the promises to the one who believes in him will live. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. And then as the way and the truth and the life, he promises the one who comes to him will have access to the Father. And as the true vine, he is the one who provides life and fruitfulness to those who are in him. So all the I am statements are precious promises to Christians and precious revelations of the person of Christ and the promise of Christ to believers. So when Jesus says to, I, to, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, he is responding to Martha's reference to the resurrection on the last day. She's thinking about an event. She's thinking about a time in the plan of God when, when God would raise the dead. But here is what Martha failed. Here is what she missed in her understanding. That the resurrection is not just an event, but a person. The resurrection is not an event. It is a person. And that is the profound reality present in this text. We must not think of the resurrection as merely something that God will do. The resurrection is something that God is. He's not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. Will God raise all men? Yes, he will. God will do this. God will do this because of who he is. So Jesus does not say, I will give resurrection and life. He doesn't say, I will be there for the resurrection. He doesn't say, I will work a resurrection or grant a resurrection, but I am the resurrection. There was no problem with her view of that distant event. She looked forward with hope to an event. She needed to look to hope in Christ. She did have an inadequate view of a very near person. It wasn't her view of the resurrection that needed to be corrected. It was her view of the person who stood before her that needed to be corrected because the resurrection has its source and its reality in him because he is that resurrection. Jesus, in fact, is the one who will raise all men by the word of his power. That's what he claimed back in chapter 5. Verses 21 to 29, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now listen. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also, to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. The Son has life in himself. 
He has authority to raise the dead. He is life because he is God. So Jesus will raise all men by an act of his will, by his power, through his word. He is the acting agent in this resurrection. He is the source of this resurrection that Martha has been talking about. He will create glorified bodies, and he will resurrect all men, some to a resurrection of judgment and others to a resurrection of life. So we may logically conclude that the one who himself will raise a world of men that have been dead for ages can doubtless raise one man who has been dead for but four days. This is no problem for one who is the resurrection and the life. He's the resurrection and the life, and for this reason, our relationship with him determines the nature of the resurrection that we will receive. All men are raised. Some are raised to everlasting contempt. Some are raised to everlasting judgment. Some are raised to everlasting life and joy. Others are raised to everlasting destruction. Everyone receives a body for eternity, and the bodies of the righteous in Christ are fit to enjoy God and serve him forever. They are fit to enjoy the joys at God's right hand forever. The bodies of the condemned and depraved are fit to be destroyed and to receive the wrath of God for all of eternity. Which one of those resurrections you partake in is determined by your relationship to Christ, because he is that resurrection. Those who are in him because they have trusted Christ for salvation receive the resurrection to life. He will raise the unbeliever, but it will not be to eternal bliss and joy. It will be to eternal contempt and destruction. So Jesus is our resurrection, and we receive the resurrection of life because we are in the one who is that life. We don't just look to an event. We look to a person. He is that person in whom we have believed and who we have set our hope for life beyond the grave. Jesus doesn't merely give us a resurrection. He is that resurrection. He gives us himself And the resurrection is just an expression of the life of Christ that is in us. He lives in me. So I cannot stay dead. I cannot be lost. The life of Christ is in me. And that is resurrection life. And therefore I will rise again. Long after this body of death has perished in the grave, though my own flesh is destroyed, I can say with Job, I will see my Redeemer take a stand on the earth, and with my eyes I will see him. That is my flesh. He's not only the resurrection, he's the life. He's the very nature of God. God is a living God. He is the God of the living. He is the giver of all life. He is the source of all life. John 1 4 says that Jesus was life and was the light, and that life was the light of men. Life cannot exist apart from God. Acts 3.15 calls Jesus the Prince of Life. Colossians 3, 3 through 4 says Christ is our life. As Jesus said in John 5, he has life in himself. He gives life to whomever he wishes. And so to be united with Christ is to have life, and to be separated from him is to be spiritually dead. The most fundamental thing that we have received from is life. God made us alive in him, and in him we live and move and have our being. This is true both physically and spiritually. There's no man or woman alive apart from the will of God. Does anything created have life in itself? No, of course not. Is there any created thing that is a source of its own life? No. All life comes from God, and nothing can live without his permission or apart from his will. And the same is true of spiritual life. No man can be made new or whole or live spiritually apart from Christ. It is in Christ that we are raised up. We are made alive in him, and all who are alive spiritually are alive spiritually because they are united with Christ, and he gives life to his people. He provides spiritual life, and he is the source of spiritual life. That is why eternal life is eternal, and it can never end. And life is one of the major themes of John's gospel. In fact, it's a major theme of some of the I am statements. Jesus provides living water. He's the living bread. He's the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, which gives life to him, uh, to all who are in him, and he is the resurrection and the life. Now, before we move on to the promise of Christ, I want you just to notice that no mere man could make such a claim. No prophet, no apostle, apostle, no rabbi, no leader ever spoke like this. These are either the words of God in human flesh, 
or they are the words of a madman. He is God in human flesh. Second, let's look at the promise of Christ, verses 25 and 26. Let's look at the promise that he makes. And his promise rests upon his person. If he is not the resurrection life, then the promise means nothing. If he is not the source of all life, if he is not the God of life, if he is not what he claims to be, then the promise is nothing. But if he is, then it is a promise upon which we can rest our souls. And here's the promise to those who believe. John 11, 25, 26. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That is the promise that is given to the one who believes. It is a, a reiteration or a restatement of other similar promises that we have already examined in John's Gospel. John 5.24, for instance, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. In John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6.47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6.58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Similar statements, similar promises. Now at first glance, the, these two statements that Jesus makes in John 11, in 25 and 26, seem like uh, two statements that are saying the same thing. It almost sounds like he's saying the same thing in two different ways. If you believe in me, you will live again after you die. And if you believe in me, you will live again after you die. But that's not what he's doing. They're not redundant statements. They're not describing the same thing. They're describing two very distinct but but intimately connected realities. There are two promises here that speak of two different things. In the first half of that sentence, Jesus is describing physical life and death, or, we might say, resurrection after death for the one who believes in it. In the second half, Jesus is describing spiritual life, eternal life, that is the possession of the one who believes in him. So those two are obviously connected, because to live for eternity and resurrection is to have eternal life. You must have it. But in both of those blessings are, are blessings that come to the one who believes in him. So let's look at each of these two promises individually. The first promise is a physical life, or physical death in life. That is, resurrection after you, after you die. Notice that the first half must be referring to physical life after death. Verse 25 says... He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Now, verse 25 can't be talking about spiritual living and dying, for then you would have one who lives spiritually after dying spiritually. He who lives, uh, verse 25, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Now, you insert the word spiritually or the qualifier spiritually there, and it wouldn't make any sense, especially in context of everything else we read in John. It'd make Jesus to be saying that he who believes in me will live spiritually even if he dies spiritually. We, we never die spiritually. We're, we are born spiritually dead. At, at no time have I ever been alive spiritually. Spirit, my spiritual life did not begin until I was saved and redeemed and regenerated by the sovereign grace of God. At no point prior to that was I ever spiritually alive or even spiritually sick. So it shouldn't strike us as odd that in the context of Martha's remark about her brother rising in the physical resurrection on the last day, and in the context of Jesus affirming that he is the resurrection and the life, and in the context of Jesus giving life to Lazarus' dead corpse, that we would also see a promise that the one who believes in him will have life beyond the grave. 
So here's the promise. The one who believes in me will physically live, even though he might physically die. Now stop for a second and take that in. Your physical death is not the end of your physical life, Christian. You will live again. The promise of Scripture, Old and New Testament, prophets and Jesus, is that the righteous will rise again in glorified bodies. We will dwell for all of eternity in bodies fit for life and thrills and joy and pleasure and work and service and dwelling on a recreated, renewed, and resurrected earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Those bodies will be powerful where these bodies are weak. Those bodies will be glorious where these bodies are inglorious. Those bodies will be supernatural bodies fit to live forever in paradise. They will not die. They will not grow old. They will not be sick. They will not suffer infirmity or lack of power. That is the true and living hope for all who place their faith in the one who is the resurrection and the life. We will rise again, and they will be physical bodies. See, the Christian faith does not despise material things. The thinking that says that true liberation is to be free from the physical and the physical bodies and physical enjoyments and physical senses because all these things are evil, that's not Christian thinking. The Christian hope is not liberation from the material. The Christian hope is to dwell everlastingly in perfect bodies. We're not going to float around in some immaterial ether world where we just hum and hang out together forever. No, no, no. New creation. Paradise. Trees. Cities. Roads. Mountains, rivers, and bodies that cannot die. It is a pagan belief that longs to be rid of the material, not Christianity. We don't long to be free from the body. We long to be free from the sin that's in the body. It is sin that we long to be free from, not the material. We don't rejoice in shedding the material body. We rejoice in shedding this body of death in order that we might be clothed with a different body, an eternal body, a supernatural, glorious body, one that was like the body that Christ rose in. And that's what Jesus is saying. Even though you are going to die, you are going to shed this body of death, you will live again. Think of all the saints that have gone on before you, passed on before you. They will rise in the resurrection. They will have bodies like unto Christ's glorified body. Philippians 3:20 and 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity to the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now this alone is enough to make heaven overwhelmingly compelling. Death is our enemy, but now through the work of Christ it is a defeated enemy and we no longer fear it. But yet... It robs us of everything here. Death takes this world from us. All that we work for is lost. All that we accumulate is lost. We see the desires of our eyes go unfulfilled. We have goals that we never reach because death seizes us unexpectedly. We have things that we would love to do, but time runs out. And the opportunity passes, and there's only so much time before death creeps up and, and swipes all of us away. How many skills and abilities and gifts do we have that we leave undeveloped and unperfected because death comes in before we can use them or perfect them? Or develop them. How many books go unread? People go unvisited. Sites go unseen. Places not gone to. Things undone. Because death cuts us down. But not after the resurrection. What would you do in a beautiful earth with a body that cannot die? Hmm? No limit on your time. You can set some long-term goals. And death will never be able to rob you of anything. Nothing can be taken from you. And though you will die physically here in this world, you will live again. The gospel is the cure for physical death. It does not prevent us from dying, but it promises us resurrection. Well, there's a second promise, spiritual 
death and life. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now this is describing the promise of spiritual life. Those who live are those who believe in him. Belief in Christ gives eternal life. And those who believe in him are the living ones. We have spiritual life. That's why we live. Because the one living is living because he is believing. And the spiritually alive, believing one will never die. And our English tends to soften the force of that statement. Jesus literally says, by no means shall die forever. That's spiritual life. That's eternal life. The one who believes will never spiritually die. He shall never die for all of eternity. He will by no means die forever. That's the nature of eternal life. They shall never perish, Jesus promised. They shall never die. The life of one who has been made alive through Jesus Christ goes on forever. Since he is believing in Jesus Christ, it is a never-ending and eternal life which can never be extinguished. And we have seen this expressed so many times in John that it almost sounds like a broken record, that eternal life is eternal life. It is life that can never end and will never end. He will by no means die forever. Now Jesus has already spoken of physical death and assured us that this physical death is not the end for the believer. We will live physically after physical death. So Jesus is not promising us that we will never die physically. He's already said that though we will die physically, we will rise again. But that physical death that you go through has no bearing at all on the extent, the security, the experience, or the length of your eternal life. Physical death will come and will rob you of many things, but it can never by no means extinguish your spiritual life. You have eternal life and you will be alive and you shall by no means die forever. Isn't that good news? Believers still pass through physical death, but it doesn't affect our life. I mean, because we're still alive on the other side of the grave. And we pass into a glorious life, a life free of death and free of sin and sickness. Death summons us to the presence of the Father. Death beckons us home. Death calls us to our home country. Our citizenship is in heaven, and the life that we have is eternal, and we carry it right through physical death without a moment's lapse in it. Not a blink, not a hiccup, not a pause. Physical death is completely insignificant for the believer. Now, you may dread it, and you may make a lot out of it, but you're only making something out of nothing, because the fear of death is gone. The dread is gone. The sting of death is taken away. It's, it's, for us, it's sleep. It's nothing more. We can never go through the worst of deaths, which is spiritual death. We can never die spiritually. In the age to come, our spiritual life will never come to an end. God's life is our eternal life, and the only way I can cease to live is if God ceases to be God, and that is an utter impossibility. So that's the promise. The one who believes in Christ, though he may spirit physically die, he will physically live again. And the one who lives spiritually in him will never die spiritually, even though he will die physically. Over you, believer, the second death has no power. Now man is a living being composed of spiritual elements and physical elements. And God in the Gospels giving us his son has provided life for both. By living in Christ, by believing in Christ, we receive both spiritual and eternal life and we will never suffer eternal death. We receive the resurrection. We receive resurrected life in bodies for all of eternity. And now we might ask, well, what does this mean to me now? I mean, these are grand promises, but I'm living here. I have back pain. I got to go back to facing life as it is. <laughs> Where does this truth meet my road? That's a good question. So let's begin with verse 26, the very end, where Jesus asks, do you believe this? See, that's the central question that must be answered in light of all of this. Do you believe this? This is what Jesus asked Martha. And that is what each of us must answer as well. Do you believe this? And by believe, we don't mean, do you simply affirm this as true intellectually? I know you do. You believe this in the sense that you know it to be what God's Word says. And you can imagine such a thing in your mind's eye. You intellectually affirm it. It's part of our doctrinal statement. You're fine with that. Sure, sure, I believe that, you might say. 
But we've seen that there are two different ways of believing something. You can intellectually affirm something, and you can emotionally and volitionally cling to it. Do you believe this? Do you cling to this hope? Would you die for this truth? Do you firmly, without question, anchor your soul's hope on this reality? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've never repented of your sin and embraced him in faith, then you're not born again. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins. You do not believe this. You may know this to be true, but you do not believe it savingly. You may know that what I am saying to you is true, but it makes no difference to you, because it never comes into your mind. It doesn't factor into your thinking in any regular way or any, any, any repeated way. So you would have to answer Jesus' question, no, because you don't really believe that. It's not an anchor for your soul because it doesn't affect you at all. It's not your hope. You really could care less. You might believe it to be true, but you do not believe it. But to you, Christian, do you fear death? Are you terrified to die? Why? If you're terrified to die, it can only be because you do not fully understand the significance of Jesus being the resurrection life. I want you to think on these things. Ponder the life to come. Set your mind on heavenly things. Discipline yourself. Start viewing life from the vantage point of the resurrection. Set your mind on the life to come. The rewards are to, there to be given. The joys that are there to be experienced. The body that is there to be received. Life forever. Fix your hope on these things. Set your affections on these things. How poor is the man or woman whose affections are set on this world rather than the world to come? You see death as a, as a great thief that takes away from you everything you have loved and delivers you nothing that you have anticipated. No wonder you dread it. If your affections are set on this world and not the world to come, death will rob you of everything and you ought to be terrified by it. But when you set your heart on the world to come, <laughs> death delivers you everything you love. It serves up for you everything you have anticipated and so much more. How rich is the man or woman whose life and heart is fixed on eternity. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.